Hello dear listeners, hello everyone. Today's episode will be a bit different. It's kind of an illustration of the topics I've been covering in the last episodes about family dynamics and in the podcast in general. I found this article in the New York Times um, titled, When Dasani Left Home, What Happens, and subtitled, What Happens When Trying to Escape Poverty Means Separating from Your Family at 13. So this is... uh, This is an African-American family living in Brooklyn. And um, the daughter, uh, Dasani, the the eldest um, child, leaves um, home. So she lives in a homeless shelter and she goes to a school, kind of like a boarding school. And yeah, so it's the story. I think it illustrates really well um, parentification, intergenerational trauma and the consequences, right? Um, I just felt it was good to, you know, bring some kind of like a practical story and share that on the podcast. I had to check copyright uh, rules on how to share a story on a podcast. So I will will not read the article per se. I will share what I got from the article and give um, my comments. I will tell it in a different order than how I read it, just to illustrate the intergenerational trauma. I will start the story four generations back when um, the protagonist of the article... Uh, Dasani quotes, when her great-grandfather came back from the Second World War, so her great-grandfather, a black man, had uh, had been to Europe to fight in the American army. So when he came back, he did not benefit from all the benefits that other veterans uh, received. So there was this uh, bill called the GI Bill that lifted many veterans into middle class because they gave them money to start businesses, go to school. They, they, they gave them lots of things to start their life when they came back from the war. And uh, black people were mainly excluded from this GI Bill. So that's the onset already four generations back of Dasani's story because her great-grandfather, Sykes, came back from the war and um, moved to New York and settled in Brooklyn and all, all he could find was like cleaning jobs. And they said he, he did like 30 low cleaning jobs in his life. And uh, his fifth child, Jones, the Sani's grandmother, um, um, had a daughter and she was already addicted to crack cocaine. Um, so in for many years, um, the black community was plied with crack cocaine and many people became addicted. It was really a war. On, on black communities. Um, so, yeah, so the grandmother, Jones, uh, was addicted to crack cocaine and had a daughter, Chanel. And Chanel is Dasani's mom. So at two years of age, Jones sent Chanel to live with her father and her father's new wife um, because she was in the throes of her addiction. She couldn't really take care of the child um and i think around the same time chanel's father died on a building site accident so the 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 stepmother still kept chanel and tried to to protect chanel from the grandmother's um influence since she was addicted but you know it's it's chanel is a small child at that point and needed and even in those early years needed her mother so even though the the stepmother would try to take her to a more like 
a better environment for her. She still always came back to her mother and things like that. So that's how um, Chanel, the mother, grew up. Um, at one point, I think the stepmother arranges for Chanel to go to Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh, but she missed her mother too much, so she came back to New York and uh, went to live with the mother in a homeless shelter. And so that's how Chanel grew up, and then she dropped out of high school as a teenager, joined a gang, and uh, got addicted to crack cocaine. And at 23 years of age, she had um, Dasani, so the girl of this article. Now we are in present day. Four generations have passed. Um, so she had Dasani at 23, and 11 months later had another baby, Aviana, and um, had six children in total. And then, uh, so after after she had Dasani and Aviana, the their father left, so they separated with the father, and then she she met Supreme, the stepfather of the two, and I think they still had um, four other children. And Supreme, I think, had two kids, so eight kids in general, two adults, and Supreme had got gone through a lot of trauma himself, so two adults, um, eight children living mostly in homeless shelters, even though Chanel, who had so many kids because she grew up so lonely, she wanted to have a family of her own. Um, even though Chanel and Supreme wanted to create a family unit like they didn't have themselves, they were caught up by their demons in that they they were addicted to drugs, so they were on and off drugs, Um what, how do they call it? Administration of Children's Services, ACS, would take the kids away. They would lose custody of the kids, regain custody again. Um, yeah, many, many issues. So in that setup, Dasani, she's like, that's where the parentification piece comes in. She knew how to change diapers before she went to kindergarten. Can you imagine? That's very young. So she would take care of all her siblings, picking up after them, just being kind of a mini adult. So she grew up with that role. But at the same time, uh, she was really a fighter. So she fought with other kids outside. Um, and her mom was very proud of that. The principal didn't understood the Sani. The principal said it's because she has too many responsibilities that she's so angry, she's so feisty, she fights with other kids and stuff. And um, uh, so, so that's how it comes out, right? So at one point, the principal has a, a wonderful idea. So she finds uh, there's this school. So there's this chocolate in the U.S. that is very uh, popular, Hershey chocolate. The guy who created that Hershey, Hershey chocolate died in 1945, a billionaire, and didn't have children, and put all his billions into a school to educate children that um, come from poverty because he himself went through a lot of poverty as a child. So so there's this school in Pennsylvania uh, where Hershey Chocolate is from, Hershey Milton School. So like they select, you have to apply and then they select you and then you go there, you live there, they take care of you in every way. And then if you don't drop out and you finish uh, up to high school, they give you a fund of like $96,000 to go to university. But most kids drop out because they really come from difficult backgrounds, right? But if you if you hold the course and you finish, you get that. So the principal suggested to Dasani to apply to that school and go there so that it would change her future, her path and everything. 
she did apply and she got in. She was so happy and uh, um, yeah, she was really scared of leaving home, um, leaving her siblings. She said she's never, uh, she's always been with her family. Family is everything for her and stuff, stuff, stuff. So she goes to this school. And um, so at first it's really hard because they had this like separation plan where they really want the child to be like integrating in the school. And so they make like a clear cut. I think in the first weeks, they were, they were like one phone call a, a week to her family and things like that. It was really kind of really strict. And there she doesn't feel comfortable. She feels like she, she has to betray who she is. She equates um, learning standard English to to speaking white. So for her, like to, to learn to speak standard English, um, was speaking white. Um, so, but she still graduates uh, middle school. It's like secondary school, uh, for, for non-Americans, uh, middle school and goes into the high school program. Um, so she then, but at first, after like two, two months in the school, she goes back home and she to visit her family and everybody all of them stare her oh um you've changed because of the way she was speaking she was correcting everyone the way they spoke her sibling just found that she had changed um she didn't want to pick up after them anymore they had dinner and then she cleaned her plate and then she decided to teach everyone how to fold their clothes because that's what she was taught at the school so her siblings were like well um Old Dasani did everything for us, picked up after us. New Dasani only takes care of herself. So, but after after like a few, not long, she started speaking like them again. So they felt a bit more comfortable. And she started high school and then she was in second year of high school and she didn't have like, she had like two years to go or something. But then what happened is that her mom and the stepdad, they they were on drugs again. So they took away all the kids and they broke down, they put them into foster care and they they separated them by pairs, you know. And uh, people from that administration for children's services came to the school to tell Dasani what had happened and things like that. And from there, her life just went downhill, that poor woman. Her life just went downhill in the fact that she felt so much guilt being in that school. And then um, she equated that because she left home and went to the school, it broke up her family, that it's her fault. If she, 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 she tells the journalist in one of the interviews that when I was home, um, did they take my brothers away? No. Uh, did, did, they, did we lose our home? No. And things like that. that it's because she went away that uh, all of that happened. So she felt like a lot of guilt and, um, and, and also she was having more and more problems at school. She didn't, she still felt as if she, she had to speak like a white person to be accepted. She didn't, she felt out of place that she felt at home in New York. And there she didn't, she felt really out of place. Everybody telling her how to hold her, how to eat, how to speak, everything, nothing is okay, right? She kept getting into fights, like serious fights, uh, getting punished, put, put away, um, yeah, counseling and many things, trying people, like they try to give her, find ways to to help her. And then they, they enrolled her mom in trying to help her understand that um, 
her behavior is not okay. She has a behavioral issue and stuff. But her mom was not really helpful in that, like when she would call. And then after like she had gotten in a fight and then they would tell her mom to tell her certain things why it's not okay to fight and this and that. And then her mom would be like, yeah, you fight like a man, like super proud of her. <laughs> she would, she didn't say she was proud, but, you know, um, she would say, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're stronger than most girls out there because you fight like a man. Uh, the journalist said like with pride and stuff. So anyways, she kept fighting until she got expelled from the school. So she had to go back to New York at 15. And um, it was really very sad because there was no home to go back to. There was nothing. All her siblings were split with different people. When she got back to New York, one of her brothers was in prison. All of the others were scattered around. Her her mom and the stepdad, they were in like a rehab program for drug addicts. So, yeah, so so she entered foster care at 15 um got into a gang and uh yeah had lots of issues with the law but she kept trying and trying and thanks to a mentor she eventually uh graduated high school which was a first because neither her grandmother her mother or even uh, her great-grandmother had graduated high school it was a first in their family that um someone graduates high school and she did it she graduated high school and she enrolled in the, in a community college uh, in business administration. So despite it all, she's trying, she's doing, um, she's doing something, right? She, I know it's a, it's kind of a sad story, but you know, it's her path. It's her way. She had certain things to learn. Um, so now I want to give you some comments about, about this the parentification this young child went through um, didn't leave her the space to develop herself, to get the skills to manage her emotions, or she didn't have time, too busy, too, yeah, too immersed, taking care of her mother's feelings. She kept saying at the end of the article that it might look like self-sabotage that she got kicked out of that school, that she she did it for her family. Her family is too important. Her mom was not ready for her to go away um and things like that and then you see in that all these comments that um she's the child but she speaks like the parent she speaks as if her mom chanel um was 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 her like they had inverse like that's the parentification the roles are inversed because she her mom should be the one worried about her going away not her worried about about going away leaving her siblings leaving her mom how would her mom cope and things like that so she had already carried on that um, parentified uh, uh, child role uh, so well that she couldn't even see her own self or her own future. Looking back, she analyzed that all the angry outbursts were was because of depression. They, when they told her that her family had split up, she became super depressed. So yeah, it made her really, really angry. So when she looks back, that's what she um, she sees. And as they say, trauma untreated will be trauma repeated. And that's what has been, I mean, with all of this, all in all the generations, there was just a lot of survivor, survivor. Um, so I read the comments of this article and people were, some people were upset that, oh, 
why is it that standard English is seen as um, speaking white, right? It's, it's something I have like a, a double take on that. Um, I can understand where she comes from with this because I, th I think she felt as if she had to erase her identity, who she is, to be able to fit at that uh, Hershey Milton school, whereas it was like just speaking standard English, I imagine. And um, the other way around is that if the community you come from, like people want you to speak a certain way, but if you start speaking like proper English or you speak in a different way, everyone tells you you're, you're speaking white, you've changed, um, you're a sellout and things like that, then... You know, you don't want to stand out in that way. You don't want to stand out in that way. So I can understand all the pressures uh, she was under, especially as a 13, 14, 50-year-old. It's, it's a bit too much, right? You, you're not old enough to know, I mean, like that the word, the word has quotes. You know, you, you go to the workplace, if you speak like this, you're stigmatized. It's not fair. And even imposing code switching on people is, is not fair, but... You know, I, I see it like when I was even in Cameroon in my village, I code switched, you know, with my grandma who didn't speak any English where, you know, I spoke in a certain way with the woman on the street who who sold pop off. I spoke pidgin to her and then in, in classroom, I made sure I didn't speak uh, my my village language or because I don't like saying dialect or um, pidgin English. I spoke standard English because I would have been whipped if the teacher had heard me speaking all the other stuff he didn't want in his classroom. So we could switch anyway somehow, right? But I think it's the shaming. It's hard. It's hard to be a first. Um, it's hard to be the first in the family. You know, we're all about uh, celebrating people being exceptional or... Um, this person, you know, exceptionalism, black excellence, it can be toxic in some way. Being the first in the family to do this, it's, it's very lonely, very, um, with a lot of anxiety because there's, if you don't have mentors or, you know, someone to kind of understand your position as a first, um, it can be a lonely thing. And then I think in capitalism, it becomes a tool to use to shame other people who don't make it. Like, oh, you see, if this person went through this and that, you know, because they always put these stories on the news, um, inner city kid who has done this, who have Ivy League and things, it's a way for capitalism or the society we live in to not take on the guilt of, of, of this intergenerational trauma that has been imposed in, in this family. And, you know, poverty, like starting from that great-grandfather, not establishing that strong boundary, you see that from one generation to another, it has followed this family. Even in uh, Dasani's case, they were going from homeless shelter to homeless shelter to homeless shelter. Um, and they took her, they extracted her from her family to bring her to a, to a different setting that she didn't recognize herself in. If you know child psychology a bit, you would know that uprooting someone at 13 years old is a very critical age. That's the age where people start, like, friendships start to matter a bit more. You know, people, you know, it's all these social relationships for teenagers start to matter. You don't want to be uprooting someone at that age, right? 
Number two, this young woman, her family was dear to her. Okay. Um, it's not the best family. She didn't receive much. Um, maybe in time when she's older, she would look back and say, I received crumbs. But in that moment, she needed that structure. Let's imagine one minute if they had instead given her like her, her and her family an apartment, like a safe apartment to live in and where they have enough food and like they have this security where they have enough to eat and they have they live in a safe apartment where, you know, they're not going to lose their home and moving from shelter to shelter to shelter for real. Um, I didn't move that much. Uh, I moved. Yeah, it's so destructive for a growing child to have that insecurity of not having a safe home that is yours, always on the move, not knowing where you will land. Um, yeah, that's that's really not ideal. Let's imagine for one minute if they had instead helped her where she is, where she feels comfortable and brought her the tools, the therapy and um, the mentorship to thrive. I don't know, maybe it would have worked, maybe not. I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm just thinking, how could we have done this differently as a society? You know, at one point, the, the stepdad, when she's leaving, the first time she's leaving to go to the school, he has tears in his eyes and he said he's mad jealous of her, um, um, that he would like to rewind it back again and go to school, that he would go to school if he rewind it back. Um, that's the thing, you know, like, then she doesn't get the support she needs because, you know, everybody's like when you're the exceptional one and you're trying to stand out, what the group wants to do is pull you back inside. They, because it's as if they all of them just seem inadequate, right? And there are some self-sabotaging or some sabotaging, unconscious, please, unconscious sabotaging activity going on there where... um when she's she's having these behavioral issues, the mom instead of trying to make her understand that she's going to lose everything if she if she keeps behaving like that, she she's praising her that she fights like a man and things like that. So it's hard to be to extract yourself from the group because it's kind of it's really kind of an alienation, you know, um, when you choose not to not to be like the group that created you. That, and that's everything you know. You decide that you want to be something else. You want you aspire to something else. And but you're hardwired in this, but you want to be this. It's a very lonely place. And uh, a lot of support is needed for that to happen. And also the fact that this young woman's father uh, left very left her very early. So her father was absent. And her stepfather and her mother were drug addicted. So um, I just feel like the fact that she's still here today, she's fighting. She's, I mean, it's a miracle given what life the cards life have dealt her. That's what intergenerational trauma does, addiction, and and then it's it becomes like when when you're lucky and you become conscious of that there's a problem, right? Then you can try to heal from that, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. I just want us to be conscious of these things because it's so easy to just go and blame this girl and say, oh, she had a chance in the comments. Many people who said that she had a chance. She should have used her chance. She couldn't see that. Um, 
she couldn't wait two years to graduate there and then get the fund, the endowment fund to go to 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 university. And uh, yeah, I just feel like when you're judgmental like that, it's because you haven't lived the hard life, you know. With that kind of life, um, there's that episode I, I did about a sense of foreshortened future. So people, they, they see normal people, they see their life, they see like you go from point A to point B, then you make these choices that it brings you here. You know, everybody tries to have a plan and then sometimes the plan works out, sometimes not, sometimes there are bumps in the way, no problem. But in the case of this young woman, when you're in such dire survival mode where you go from, you don't even have a home and this and that, you cannot even see past next week or next month or, you know, you don't, or next the next day, that's the thing, you're, you're, you don't have this projection into the future where you can see how things will play out for you favorably. Like, oh, if I finish high school, then I will go do this and then I will do that. And then I, I don't know. It was just a lot of stuff. I think she will, she will process everything with time. Um, I hope, I wish her well. I wish her well. Um, I just found the story fascinating because... Yes, it's in America, and uh, I mean, uh, from my experience, it's happened in in Cameroon. But I'm sure there are so many families like that in Cameroon, where from one generation to the next, things don't get better, and then it's just like, oh, these people they are cursed; they cannot do anything better. But if you go see the dynamics of the cards they've been dealt. Yeah, I mean, they just need help. That's all they need, right? And uh, but for, for help to happen, someone has to be conscious they have a problem. That's where some people say that um, trauma is an epidemic because when you don't know, you, you cannot hear what you don't know. You cannot hear what um, you're not conscious of. And I also believe that if you're in survival mode, you don't, you don't have that space to, to heal anything because you're surviving. Like you, you, You're fighting to eat... To, you cannot you cannot be in the healing healing space it's it's really too hard yeah anyways i hope i didn't uh, depress you too much with my episode to end on a good note she's still in university so she's despite it all she's still fighting to have a stand number 2 this story is going to be published as a book i think at the end of this month so the book is called invisible child Subtitle, Poverty, Survival, and Hope in an American City by Andrea Elliott. So it's the story of this young woman. And the Sani quotes I just um, kind of shared with you in this episode. So yeah, voila, voila. That's it for today. Um, see you next week for new adventures, right? Bye-bye. <music>